0: Good morning Tina, how are you doing today? Can you throw this away from me please? One of those days or one of those weeks where you just you as your family you and your family you just decide I just need to get away. You know, it's not like you're anything's going wrong, it's nothing like stress or anything in your life. You just decide kind of spontaneously, I just need to get away for a few days. You ever been there? Anybody been there? Okay, so so this week, uh, our family decided to do that. We had some out-of-town family from California in town, and so we just decided, let's just get away for a couple days. So we left on Wednesday and um it was one of those things we drove, decided to go up into the mountains. So we drove to the mountains, and, uh, and we get there, and then Thursday hits, okay? And we're in the mountains on Thursday, and if you know anything about what was happening on Thursday up in the Tennessee mountains, we get there, and it, it, the, the thing that was happening is very similar to the thing that you've probably dealt with in your life, you know? That perfect beach day, Right. Where you might only have 24 to 48 hours of beach time and you get out on the beach and something happens. Or maybe it's that outdoor wedding that you had planned, right? You get out on the, out there, you got all the things together for that, all the invitations have been sent. And you get there and something happens. And we all know what it is, right? We all know that what comes next is those clouds. That unexpected Thing that came into the picture have you ever noticed that for whatever reason we're drawn our attention is drawn to those kind of moments isn't it it's almost like those clouds come at the most inopportune time possible I mean we're in the mountains we've got like 24 to 48 hours to do some fun things and at the most inopportune day and some of it's just poor planning on my part but the most inopportune moment for the hurricane to kind of be rolling through there. And that so, seems so small compared to what other people were dealing with with that hurricane. But the truth is there's a cloud in our own lives that comes at the most inopportune time imaginable. And it's kind of the thing I want to talk about this morning. We're in a series called Climate Change. And it's really all about this idea that just as weather patterns have climates... We as human beings have climates as well. And we've said a few things, and it's there on your outline. You can kind of see the review. If this is your first week here, you can kind of catch up online or just kind of look over what we have there. But the first thing we've been saying for weeks now is that you do have a climate. And the second thing we've said is that whether you know it or not, you have a climate. And it's very difficult to know what your climate is. And we showed you this climate map that's been here on the screen, but what we've said is that decisions about the attitude you have, decisions about the perspective you have, determines and dictates what your climate is going to look like, which ultimately dictates the forecast. And we see this, that when we have the right attitude, when we have the right perspective, we generate around us a pleasant climate that leads to a forecast of satisfying relationships and lasting friendships and love at the center of those. But when we make bad decisions about our attitude, when we make bad decisions about the way we see life and the way we see the things that are hitting us... We generate a negative climate that leads to a forecast of death and destruction in our lives. And we've been saying this for weeks. And the first week we asked this question, because it's so difficult to know what our climate is, the first week we asked this question, what's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be around me? What kind of climates do I generate? And last week we asked the question, what's it like to be with me? When life's not stress-free, when things come into our lives that are not fun, what is it like to be around me? And we talked about this path of hope that you can see there in Romans chapter 5. This hope of suffering producing perseverance, perseverance producing character, and character producing hope. And that when we choose to pursue that path, rather than some default negative climate... Man, God can do great things in and through us. This morning, I want to ask another question. This is kind of our last morning together on this this topic, but I want to ask this question to you this morning. What's it like for you and me when we disagree? What's it like for you and me when we disagree? We know this to be true, that no two people will agree on anything. When disagreements come, what happens to your climate? What happens to the climate of your relationships? Nothing has the potential to bring about the clouds in a climate Like a disagreement. And much like the clouds in weather, let's be honest, disagreements typically come. Conflict typically comes at the most inopportune time, right? And here's what we need to know about our climates. Here's what we need to know about what God says about conflict in our lives. That the climate of your relationships improves when conflict is resolved not ignored. That the climate of your relationships, that those climates, those climates improve when conflict is resolved, not ignored. And we know this to be true, but easier said than done, right? It's so much easier for us in our relationships. It's so much easier for us to not resolve conflict. Because if we don't resolve it, we don't have to conflict altogether. But here's the thing about that. Man, it doesn't help our relationships. It doesn't help us in our relationships with one another. When conflict is resolved, the resulting climate is called unity. When conflict is resolved, the resulting climate is called unity. And let's be honest. We all want that, don't we? Every one of us in this room Longs for unity many people will go to great lengths to have unity whether it's a social club or a fraternity whether it's an athletic sports team whether it's even church we long to be a part of something a place where we can belong and a people that we can be accepted by this is the deep desire of every one of us in this room and it goes deeper than country clubs. That even in our closest relationships, we desire unity. We desire unity with our spouse. We desire unity in our friendships. We desire unity within our family. I've never heard a spouse on their wedding day say, and probably no spouse on their wedding day has even thought this, well, we're going to give this a run. And probably in about three or four years, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. No, every, every spouse on their wedding day, when they're standing in front of that altar, in front of their, their, their friends and their family, no one is sitting there or they're not sitting there thinking, this will probably be over in four years. They're not thinking that. Their desire is unity. No dad holds his child and thinks to himself, You know, in in another 10 or 12 years, when they hit teenage years, they're probably, you know, we're going to just kind of be estranged from one another. Like no dad or mom wants that with their kid. No parent wants to be estranged from their child later on in life. They desire unity. No roommate in college desires to have the awkwardness of disunity in their Dorm room. No one wants that. We all strive for unity. And, and a lot of us, I think, we have this idea that unity is kind of like what we see in the movies, right? The guy meets the girl, they ride off into the sunset, and they live happily ever after, and unity's unity's there. But what they don't show you after the end credits is 10 minutes into that horseback ride, the wife's complaining that it's too bumpy, and the man's forgotten where he's going. This is the truth about unity. Unity, we want it, but it doesn't happen unless there's conflict. Unity brings about conflict. That unity is, for lack of a better word, the silver lining in the cloud of conflict. It's the silver lining in the cloud of conflict. And for some of us, man, we run so far away from conflict, we just want to ignore it that we never understand that that's where God wants to bring about unity in our relationships, if we do it the right way. And, and we, we know this to be true. When conflict is resolved, let's be honest, there is so much freedom in that, isn't there? Like when there's something going on between me and a friend or me and my spouse or me and my children or me and anybody, there is such freedom when the conflict is resolved. It's like a load's been lifted. And we love the result of unity, but we hate the path of getting to unity. But unity is a big deal to God. So I want us, if we can, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, uh, Paul in this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, the first three chapters of this letter have been designated to talking about the identity we have as Christ followers. The blessings, the honors, the privileges of being a child of God. And then Paul changes his direction right here in chapter 4. Now Paul is explaining how believers should practically live out their faith. And guess what the top thing on his list is? It's this idea of unity. Look with me in uh, chapter 4 verse 1. We're going to read through our passage this morning. And then we're going to go back and talk a little bit about it. But look at what it says. Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, Paul, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now the last part of this passage, look at what Paul's doing. He's basically saying, hey, all these things in the Christian life are about unity. They are about oneness. that every, Everything related to salvation, everything related to the church, and the kingdom of God is based on this idea of unity. Unity is a big deal to God, and it doesn't just happen. It requires energy, and it requires effort. Some of you guys in here, you guys are like scientists. I mean, you love science. That's not really my thing. But some of you in here, you geek out when it comes to things about science. So I'm going to throw a little science at you this morning. The second law of thermodynamics. Please don't fall asleep if you're in here, okay? The second law of thermodynamics states this. That all things move toward disorder. And we know this to be true. Find an old cup of milk in your house like two weeks later and you'll recognize that's the second law of thermodynamics right there. That all things move toward disorder if there is not additional energy put into the system. All things move towards disorder if there's not additional energy put into the system. This is a scientific fact that we know to be true. And here's the truth. It works the same way in relationships. It takes incredible energy and effort to keep unity in a relationship. You see, we tend to think that unity is this idea that I'm gonna give 50% of the relationship and my friend or my spouse or my companion or whoever, my child, my parent, They're going to give 50%. If I give my 50%, they're going to give their 50%, and it'll make this 100%, right? 50 plus 50 equals 100. That'll make the unity. And it's this expectation that you do your part, and I'll do my part. And for a lot of us, that's what we think unity is. It's this statement of you do this, you do this, and I will do that. And we think this is where unity sits in our relationships. You do this, and I will do that. But here's the problem with that mindset, this 50-50 mindset. What this statement becomes in our relationships is not this, it's this next statement. If you do this, then I will do that. And this is the problem we face, that when we look at unity with this, you do this and I'll do that mindset, it takes us to a place of conditional. It takes us to a place of, okay, if you do this, then I'll do that. And this is not God's design for unity. And the reason some of us truly are dealing with major unresolved conflict in our life is because we are following this kind of model in our relationships. But unity is giving each person In a relationship, giving 100% to the relationship. We understand this so much better when we're dating, right? Like when I was dating Crystal, I understood this to the hilt. If you've ever seen my wife, I know. I, I ask myself every day. I've actually had my friends ask me this, which hurts my feelings a little bit, but it's true. They ask, How in the world did you ever get Crystal to go on a date with you? I know, especially if you saw me back in college. Believe it or not, I actually looked worse in college. I was kind of like a cross between, never mind. Um, <laughs> not important, not, not part of the message. Um, but here's the truth. In the early days of our relationship, I had to work, like 100%. My wife is the most lease maintenance person in the world. It's not because of that. The problem was, let's be honest, there were several guys lined up, like Several guys lined up, wanting to date Crystal, my wife. And I had to give 100% to that relationship. A better word for it, and this might be kind of a tough word to hear, but I had to fight for that relationship. And some of you guys know in the room, you guys that were married, or that are married, you remember what that was like. You remember giving 100%, really fighting for that relationship. And if you're dating in the room and you're engaged and you're getting to that place, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But here's the thing that kind of happens in marriage relationships, but it really happens in all relationships. We tend to get lazy in this. We tend to get to a place where we kind of forget that we're supposed to be given 100%. We forget to fight... For the relationships. And unity is knowing this true statement. That fighting for the relationship means fighting in the relationship. But the fight is not against one another. It's not that we're fighting against that other person in our life. It's not that we're fighting against them. God makes people and people make issues. But people are not issues. Ephesians 6.12, we know this verse. It's going to come up on the screen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are not wrestling with one another, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What it's saying here is our fight is not against one another. Whether it's in a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, a family situation, or a friend situation, our fight is not against another human being. Our fight is against the enemy who's creating the strife in the relationship. So how do we fight fairly when it comes to conflict? How do we resolve conflict and not ignore it? How do we attack? You've heard this before. How do we attack the problem but not the person? How do we fight for unity? Well, right here in Ephesians, it tells us this. First thing, fight with humility. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul talking, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. How? Look at what it says. With all humility. Now, it's interesting that Paul's writing this in, because he is literally in this moment in the most humbling situation he can be in. He says prisoner for the Lord there, he's he's alluding to the fact that he's in jail. Like he's in prison in Rome right now when he's writing this. And he starts this whole unity talk with this word humility. Uh, Some of your translations might say or your Bibles might say lowliness. And this is kind of crazy. I didn't even know this. You would think I would have learned this at some point along the way. I didn't know this until I was studying this. But at this time, when Paul wrote this letter, there wasn't a Greek word for humility. This word here wasn't in the Greek language, so to speak, because the Greeks didn't have a word for humility. They looked at humility, and they looked at lowliness, and they looked at putting others first as something that is weak. So the Greek culture didn't even have a word for humility. And Paul comes along, and actually, if you can go study the etymology of this word, if you want to do that. But if you go study that, you'll find that this word came into existence right here in the first century church. Where Paul, and a lot of scholars actually believe Paul was the one that made this term up. This term Tepnotata. I don't know how to say it right. But that's the Greek word for humility. That Paul himself coined this term. And it's the starting point to resolving conflict is this word humility. Yet I believe a lot of us, if we're honest, a lot of us, when we hear that word, some of us maybe think the same way the Greeks thought about the word. For some of us, maybe we look at the word humility and we think That's kind of a weak stance. Because here's the thing. We have a hard time seeing our faults and our problems when we're in the midst of conflict. It's hard for us to see our climate and our wrong. Think about it. You never say in the middle of an argument. I've never said this to Crystal. I know I'm wrong. I know you're right. I just like yelling. Like no one says that. Why? Because here's the truth. When we're in conflict, when we're in an argument, there's two things true. We think we are right, and we think we are handling it right. And this is the basis for bad climates in relationship. This pride that sets up in us and blinds us of the truth of where we are in our relationship. God calls us to fight with Humility. Look at First Peter five five. It's here on the screen. Be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. That word "resists" there—it's the idea of military action. God resists the proud, but gives grace to they're humble. What's this saying? It's saying this, that anytime we're in conflict with someone else, we need to forget about the conflict with that person and realize this, we are ultimately either in conflict with God or we're receiving grace. That when we come into conflict in our lives, when we allow pride in our lives in conflict, God says here, we are opposed to him. He is resisting us. And that's a pretty bad place to be. That's worse than any little conflict we could have in life or any big conflict we can have in life. When you're in conflict, are you being resisted by God or are you receiving God's grace? Here's another way to ask the question. If we understand grace and what it is, here it is, in conflict, whose sin or whose fault bothers you more? The person that faulted you or your fault in the matter I remember about a year ago um, I was getting my kids ready for school and uh, Zion he's our he's our third son He, he was five at the time and he was getting dressed, and he's gotten to a point where he can get himself dressed, you know. And we're rushing. We're always rushing out the door. If you've got big families, you know how that goes. It's literally like a chase to get to school and not get a tardy. But we're literally flying out the door, and he's got his clothes on. And I didn't really pay attention. And we get to school, and the door opens, and he starts walking out of school. And literally, the boy has his pants on backwards, How do you do that? Like, I'm sitting there. I mean, it had a button and everything. It wasn't like sweatpants. It was jeans, okay? (laughs) Jeans. And he's walking through school, and it looks like he's, like, in reverse or something. And it's too late. Like, he's already out the door. I can't stop him. And I was so embarrassed. I mean, I literally, I was so frustrated. I remember getting to work, telling some of our pastors on staff and our, our people there in the office. I remember just saying, how do you do that? Like, literally, how do you do that? I was. I was a little frustrated with him, a little irritated. Like, how do you do that? And I literally walk into my office. I sit my stuff down. I'm getting ready to have a a, a little quiet time with the Lord. and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, man, this shirt feels funny. I don't know what's wrong with this shirt. I've got the shirt backwards and inside out. <laughs> no lie. The same day. The same day. My, I mean, we must have had something wrong to eat last night the same day my son's wearing in pants backwards and me literally just put off by that like how does a five-year-old do that this 38 year old man can't figure out how to put a shirt on in the mornings and here's the truth about that man when we think about something like that man that's kind of how God reveals himself to us doesn't he He's saying, hey, you're so worried about this person's fault over here, but what about your part in the matter? What about your situation? Instead of me checking Crystal's behavior, instead of me checking my kid's behavior, what does my heart look like in the midst of conflict? How we treat others indicates what we believe about the gospel. How we treat others in the midst of conflict indicates what we truly believe about the gospel. Instead of comparing wrongs, you have to make what Jesus did for you bigger than what anyone did to you. That in fighting with humility, and this is kind of a tough thing to say, in fighting in humility, the most mature person apologizes first. Now that's a weird statement. I remember the first time I ever heard that statement. I was in John and Ginger Oriente's connect group. We were in a marriage group. And I remember them saying that statement. And me and Crystal just kind of looking at each other, you know. Because here's the truth. My wife almost always apologizes first. And man, this hit me square in the face. This competitive nature in me that every time I think about this, every time I'm in conflict, I'm always mindful that she's almost always the one apologizing first. I mean, where are we when it comes to conflict? There's very rarely a time where it's all just one person's wrong, right? A lot of time in conflict, it's both, it's both parties in some form or fashion. But where are we when it comes to that? Are we waiting for that person to apologize to us? Are we humbling ourselves and saying, Okay, God, I, I want to I receive grace now. I don't want to be prideful. I want to receive grace. The most mature person apologizes first. Next, we need to fight with gentleness. Fight with gentleness. Therefore, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and with gentleness. The last, the first week I asked my son the, the question, my oldest son. I felt like he was old enough to answer this question well in my life. I asked him on the way home one day, I said, What's it like to be on the other side of me? And he said, it's honestly really fun, Dad. I said, great. And then he said, but sometimes it's kind of harsh. And I said, could you explain more what you mean? He said, sometimes I know that you're right in what you say I need to do, but you say it in such a harsh way, and it hurts me. And this is my firstborn. Like, here's the truth. My son doesn't... It doesn't. Like, you know, wave the waters or whatever you want. He doesn't do that. Like, this is like truth coming out of his mouth. And he says, sometimes I know that you need to discipline me and say what needs to be said. But sometimes you say it really hard. And man, that just, if that's not true for my life, I don't know what is. That sometimes I can be right and handle it the wrong way. That's what it means to be harsh, to not be gentle. And for some of you, man, you might see a smile on Sunday morning, but I'll be honest, man, you have no idea how harsh I can be sometimes, man. It's embarrassing. And for some of you, I feel like you might be in the same boat, just moments in your life where you're just unkind, you're, you're hurtful. James 1:19 through 20 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's what this is really saying. It's saying that we can be right and still be wrong. We can be right and still be wrong. We can be right in truth and wrong in how we handle truth in conflict. A bad attitude in relationships is like a flat tire. You won't go anywhere until you change it. What really makes the difference, if you want to know what really makes the difference between whether you're harsh or whether you're gentle, is asking yourself this question in the middle of conflict Do you believe the best or do you assume the worst? When you're in conflict, do you believe the best in what somebody's doing? or do you assume the worst this is what 1 Corinthians 13:7 is saying he's saying hey love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things it's this idea where we are giving people the benefit of the doubt do you believe the best or do you assume the worst in conflict it will determine whether you're harsh whether you're gentle next the fight for unity means fighting with patience therefore I prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility with gentleness and then with patience your Bible might say long-suffering that it's this idea of the ability to endure discomfort you ever been in a car with a friend, like you get in the car with your friend and um, all of a sudden you're in the car and like within 30 seconds you realize, this happens to me a lot, you realize it's too hot in this car and, and you're sitting there and you're feeling the warmth, right? And you don't know what you should say because you don't want to like tell him how to run his car and you're sitting there and you know, your beads of sweat right now and you're just sitting there and you're thinking, okay, is he going to cool it down? It's really hot in here. And then you might even say something like, hey, man, it's kind of warm. Can you turn the air on? And he turns it to, like, vent and fan one. (laughs) And you're thinking to yourself, um, I'm thinking five and max AC right now, right? Here's the truth about us. Our threshold for discomfort is very, very short. And when it comes to conflict, we're even shorter. Some of us will give more grace in a scenario like that, a silly scenario like that, than we will within the conflicts of people that we love. And patience, listen, patience is tested not in the content or the elements of an argument. We tend to think that our patience is because this person did this or this person didn't do this, and we tend to think that patience is based out of the contents of the argument, but it's not patience is tested most in conflict because of the friction between two types of people two types of people the real rub here is what the real test of patience is is not on a particular issue it's between two things are you a conflict avoider or are you a conflict enjoyer are you a conflict avoider Or are you a conflict enjoyer? If you take every argument, every conflict, the real patience is tested between these two types of people. Look at the conflict avoider. The conflict avoider typically is someone who fears rejection. They have a fear of rejection. So when it comes to conflict, when it comes to dealing with conflict, the tendency for them is to escape conflict at all costs. They're trying to escape conflict at all costs. They're not about resolving conflict. They're about escaping conflict. And the result of conflict avoiders left to themselves, the result of these people is surface-level relationships. That The relationships in their life, because they never deal with conflict, they never resolve conflict, the result for a lot of them is surface-level relationships. And that sounds pretty bad. Like the conflict avoiders, when you read that, you think, oh, man, that's bad. And some of you are like, you know, you feel that. You're like, ah, that's me. I know. I deal with that. But for others of us, we're conflict enjoyers. That's me. My tendency is to enjoy conflict. I know that sounds sick, right? The fear for a lot of conflict enjoyers is this fear of failure. They don't want to lose the argument. So what's their tendency? A lot of us would think their tendency is to resolve the conflict. Their tendency is not to resolve the conflict. Their tendency is to win at all costs. They don't care about resolution. And their tendency, in their natural state of sin, their desire is to win at all costs. And the result of the person that's living out their life this way, the result is these volatile relationships. These relationships that are toxic because of how just confrontational they are, not to resolve conflict, but to win conflict. And the combination of these types of people strains our patience. And it's not as if, you know, like I'm married to a conflict avoider. So our patience is tested when my wife in her flesh is running from conflict and where I'm chasing her trying to win the conflict. But it works the other way. Maybe there's two people in the relationship that are conflict avoiders. It works the same way. There's that, pay, that impatience of who's going to address the issue. Or maybe you got two conflict enjoyers. That's, like, that's just mind-blowing when you get two of them together. It's just volatile. That we have to realize that our patience is tested with these kind of people. Romans 15:5 through 7 says this. Now may the God of patience... The God who gives patience and comfort, grant you to be like minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us. Paul is closing Romans chapter 14 with the idea that there are some things in this life that are not right and wrong. There's some things that are just preference. There are some things that are just you do it this way and I do it that way. And if we're honest, there are conflicts in our life where there's no right and there's no wrong. It's just this person does it this way, this person does it that way. And what Jesus is saying here, what God's saying here is, hey, it doesn't mean you have to be like-minded on the issue or the opinion. It says here, like-minded toward one another. So here's how this looks in our patience when we are conflicted, when we are seeking God and we are seeking resolution with humility and with patience. What this means is for for us that are conflict avoiders, for those of you that are conflict avoiders, it means that you are seeking to engage. That your desire needs to be, I'm going to seek to engage this person. I know I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to Face the possible rejection. I want to avoid the conflict, but I'm not going to avoid it. I'm going to seek to engage. And if you're a conflict enjoyer, God's saying to you, hey, seek to understand. Seek to understand. Don't be so quick to try to win the argument. When we are seeking to engage and we are seeking to understand, that's when resolution comes. That's when humility and unity come. Next, fight with acceptance. Therefore I the prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness with patience accepting one another in love. This love mentioned here it's agape love. It's unconditional love. What does it mean to accept someone in love especially when you're in conflict with that other person? To accept someone in what to accept someone Even when what they're doing is wrong. This is a question we ask a lot, isn't it? In relationships, we ask this question a lot. How do I accept someone in love even when what they're doing is wrong? Do we just gloss over everything? Do we just pretend like it's not there? I think Ephesians 4, if you look just a little further in your chapter there, tells us what we should do. Verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human, human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Paul is talking here about the church not falling for falsehood and engaging in wrong things. But then he says this, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. This is how we fight unity with acceptance. We fight it. By speaking truth in love. How do you accept someone in love? You speak truth in love. Truth and love seem to always be pitted against one another. But they don't contradict one another. We always have this idea of, well, I'm speaking the truth in love, and really it's either not truth or it's not love. But this is the truth. Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth It's hypocrisy. The biblical call to love will never force you to trim, deny, or bend the truth. And the biblical call to truth will never ask you to abandon God's call to love your neighbor. Paul Tripp, he wrote a book called New Morning Mercies. It's a devotional book. Great book. He says this about this issue. Truth isn't mean and love isn't dishonest. They are the two sides of the same agenda that longs for the spiritual welfare of another. That when you are humble, when you are gentle, when you are patient, you can speak truth in love. For some of us, man, this is is where it comes down. We look at the conflict in our life. We look at the relationships we have. Some of us may have even walked in this morning with unresolved conflict right here in the room. And God's saying to you this morning, your climate, the relationship, is better when conflict is resolved, not ignored. So what's it like for you and me when we disagree? This can be a huge problem in our lives, but it doesn't have to be. That the condition of your heart is more important than their behavior. So when it comes to conflict, man, where are you? Application in conflict, seek to resolve, not ignore. In your relationships, fight for unity. We're out of time this morning, but I just want to I just want to encourage you. Go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. As you think about the conflict in your life, as you think about the climate of your relationships, is it volatile? Are those relationships volatile or are, they, are they not good? Are your relationships surface level? Are you always seeking to avoid conflict? Are you always seeking to win the argument in your relationship with your spouse or your, your friend or your family member? Man, this morning, allow God to shape your climate, to make you humble, to make you gentle, to give you patience. And to speak truth and love and accepting people for who they are, for where they are. Not accepting necessarily their behavior, but speaking truth and love and giving them that unconditional love. Emily, Father, we just pray, God, that you would just, this morning, God, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. God, if there's conflict in our lives that's unresolved with someone else, God, I pray, Lord, that we would right now just make it a point, Lord, to to resolve that, not to ignore that, not to try to win the argument, but, Lord, to examine our own hearts and see where we're at and seek you, Father. God, we want resolution. We want, we want this, these, these clouds of conflict in our life, Lord. We know that they're going to come. Even at the worst times, they're going to come. But, Lord, with your strength and with your power, God, we want to seek unity, Lord. God, that's what we desire, Lord. We ask this thing, these things in your name. Amen.